I know many of you have heard of the organization um, World Access Project. If it sounds familiar, it's because the founder, uh, Richard St. Dennis, shared at our church a few weeks ago, and it's also the organization that Patrick and Adelaide and their family are going to be serving with when they move to Mexico in the fall. World Access Project uh, collects donated wheelchairs, refurbishes them, and then distributes them to people throughout Mexico. Many of the recipients of these chairs in Mexico have never left their home unless they have been carried or they've crawled or they've been transported in a wheelbarrow or a wagon. It's estimated that roughly 100,000 people in Mexico are still in need of, of a wheelchair. Uh, and to reframe that, 100,000 people roughly uh, don't see personal freedom or personal mobility as an option that they have yet. Imagine if you had lost the use of your legs, or maybe you were born that way. Maybe you never had the use of your legs. Uh, imagine that for years you were stuck in a small room in a small house, and uh, anytime you wanted to move anywhere, you were at the mercy of someone else. Then imagine, if you will, a knock at the door, and it's World uh, Access Project, and they have a wheelchair and they tell you that because of the love of Jesus that they're compelled uh, to give you the gift of mobility. Uh, they heard about your situation and they've come to deliver a, a, a refurbished, nice wheelchair for you. No cost, no strings attached. Wouldn't you think that would be very good news? Uh, the potential there would be to it could turn your world upside down. Life as you know it would be different potentially uh, by having this gift of mobility. And I can see why, just saying that out loud, why Patrick and Adelaide would be so interested in, in serving in this way. For the past couple of weeks, we've been looking at the Beatitudes according to Luke. Uh, the teachings of Jesus are declarations such as, blessed are the poor, the hungry, those who weep, those whom the world hates and persecutes because of your allegiance to Jesus. And that continues, woe to those who are currently rich, but not rich in God, to those who are full of food, but not full of God, to those who rejoice in their own success, but not in God, and those who are well-liked by the world, but not because of God. News like that would turn your world upside down. It's good news. It's good news because it's a warning to those who are living uh, outside of God's will, and it's an opportunity to repent. And it's good news to those who feel like they're losing at life according to the world because Jesus says, you are blessed. News like that might feel something like World Access Project showing up at your door with good news that can change your life. But there's a little more to it than that. Patrick and Richard shared a surprising reality that once you think about it makes a lot of sense. They said, you know what happens when the average person receives a wheelchair who has never walked before? I don't know. I, I thought, well, they would, they would celebrate and, and they, would, they would start a new life. And that, that's kind of what I thought. But in reality, that's rarely the case. Richard said that in the beginning, World Access Project was just, when they were just starting, that they would give some a wheelchair and the people would rejoice and be happy. And then they would go back maybe a few months later to just see how the wheelchair has impacted their lives. And what they found was that people sat in the wheelchair in the same room where they used to lay on their bed and didn't really get out very much. 
Why would that be? Well, I'm sure there's several reasons, but the two that kind of came up from the conversation was these. First, the idea of a chair and mobility might be good news, but people who have never had a wheelchair don't know how to use it. Like, what are the capabilities, and how do you get over the threshold of a door, let alone navigate a couple of stairs, or what do you do with potholes, and questions like that. Second, the idea of a chair might be good news, but what, uh, what is there to do outside my house? Like, I've never really been besides getting dragged out. I don't really have any friends out there. I've only, only tagged along with my, my parents or my brother or sister. What benefit is there to me by going outside or going to the library or going to the market? I'm kind of comfortable the way things are. There's a disconnect between the good news of potential freedom brought by that chair and the reality of people actually living into that freedom. And that's why World Access Project now tries to mentor recipients of these wheelchairs, uh, not only mentors and teaching them how to use them, like what a physical therapist or occupational therapist might do, but people who can help open their imagination to what life can be like now that they have mobility. See, the chair only provides the opportunity for good news, but living into that new freedom takes practice, and it takes time, and it takes guidance. The text we're going to look at this evening is some of that practical guidance. If the Beatitudes are like the gift of a new wheelchair, Jesus' good news to us, then these passages that follow show us a glimpse of what this new life can actually look like with Jesus' help. Would you stand if you're able as we read the Gospel of Luke? Chapter 6, verses 27 through 36. But I say to you who hear... Love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who mistreat you. Whoever hits you on the cheek, offer the other also. And whoever takes away your coat, do not withhold your shirt from him either. Give to everyone who asks of you. And whoever takes away what is yours, do not demand it back. Treat others the same way you want them to treat you. If you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. If you do good to those who do good to you, what credit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. If you lend to those from whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners in order to receive back the same amount. But love your enemies and do good. And lend, expecting nothing in return. And your reward will be great. And you will be sons of the Most High. For he himself is kind to the ungrateful and evil. Be merciful, just as your Father is merciful. Lord, help us. Those are some intense things that you say to us. Help us to hear through the excuses, to hear you through the static, to hear you through the centuries that separate us from the time you spoke these things to the time that we are hearing them now. Help us to hear what you're saying and have the courage to obey. Amen. You may be seated. 
Uh, if you thought the Beatitudes and the woes were tough to swallow, wow. Nothing quite gets a person's defenses up like uh, commanding you to love your enemies and or allowing people to, to basically steal from you without expecting anything back. I mean, I've been saying this all week, but I can hear it in your minds right now. Yeah, but what if? Won't this kind of teaching just make us fools? And what about those among us who have been taken advantage of? Those who have suffered violence from others without their consent. What, how are we supposed to read these words and to take them seriously? At face value, I mean, this sounds worse than someone running their nails down a chalkboard or listening to the frozen soundtrack on Infinite Loop. I mean, it's, it's horrible. Thank, thank goodness Samara's on to Moana now. It's at least a little better. But... Um, so I, I've just got a couple of, of things to think through as we dig into this text. First of all, I'm just going to ask a big favor. Let's suspend our judgment for a few minutes. Let's rest in the fact that we're in a safe place among people that love each other. Um, and in the fact that I'm ever trying to preach what Jesus preaches with accuracy and with grace. Okay, so just let's suspend our judgments for a moment. Second, let's choose to trust that God is good, that Jesus is the incarnate God, and that his word is life-giving. So whatever this says, we're going to suspend our judgment and we're going to believe that this is good news because Jesus is preaching the gospel, which means good news. Okay? Third, let's try and listen the way that Jesus' hearers would have heard these words. So that's where I'll, I'll try and shed some light onto some of those language and culture differences that we're not used to. And fourth and finally, then we'll come back and we'll ask our questions of the text. Is that, is that okay? So we're going to try and suspend judgment for a minute. Cognitive dissonance, right? Okay, so what would Jesus' hearers have heard? Why is this passage good news? Can good news also be hard news? Those are some of the things we're going to wrestle with now. Okay, in a way, Jesus is doing what World Access Project does. He's given good news to those who are persecuted because of him. Now he wants to show them what it means to be blessed. He wants to give imagination for what life in the kingdom of God can look like. And over the next several weeks, we're going to look at what he says. So today we're focusing on that love your enemies stuff. Instead of, here's a wheelchair, let me show you what you can do with it and where you can go, he's saying, here's a new life. Life the way it was intended to be. Let me show you some examples of what this life can look like. You're blessed if people persecute you because of me, because of your allegiance to me. It shows that you're mine and I take care of my own. Now that your identity as my child is set, and now that your future hope is set because of the resurrection, let me show you how free you can be. Love, pray for, do good to, bless your enemies, those who hate, curse, and mistreat you. And that, that's just for starters. Now Jesus is about to go loco. If anyone slaps you on your right cheek, turn the other to him also. And in a world where people only wore two pieces of clothing, the, the inner garment and the outer tunic, he says, if anyone takes away your outer cloak, don't withhold your inner tunic either. Okay, stop it. Now, I know 
you're already doing the yeah buts and what ifs. Stop that. We're, we're going to suspend that for a minute. Um, let me ask you something. Do you think Jesus is giving us rules here? It's rhetorical. If Jesus is giving us rules here for you and me, how useful are they? When was the last time somebody slapped you in the cheek and you had to decide, oh, what an ethical dilemma. Should I punch them back, run, or turn the other cheek? When's the la- yeah. When is the last time you were wearing two pieces of clothing and someone stole one of them and you had to make that ethical choice? Should I just give them my underpants too and like go around naked from here on out? I'm guessing, at least on the clothing part, that probably hasn't happened uh, recently. These two examples are something ancient teachers of rhetoric, um, rabbis and, and, and Jesus himself, um, they're, 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 it's a technique called focal instance. Okay, I know that sounds lame, but this is, this is the idea. A teacher wants to make a general point, and to get that point across, uh, kind of like for shock value, they use an example that is so shocking, so impractical, that the hearer is forced to use their imagination to see what this actually means in real life. The image of the slap of the face, for example, is used to convey the idea of public insult. So this isn't someone like uh, uh, physically assaulting you, punching you. This is the idea of someone is shaming you in public, whether that's on the street or in the workplace or in a family. Public insult in the ancient world was not only painful because it was embarrassing, it could actually affect your social standing within your family or your village, whatever your social net was. And the expected, hear this, the expected thing that you would do if you were insulted in public by a slap on the face or by a verbal assault was to not only retaliate with something just as good, but something better. It's kind of like, think uh, junior high boys bantering back and forth with like your mama jokes or something like that. Just, it, it's just that you're always trying to one-up each other, okay? So in the ancient world, that is kind of the idea, that it was expected you would defend your name because your social standing would... Okay, so it, it would be unheard of to turn the other cheek, to just let someone dress you down in public, not only because it might shame you, but it might shame your family, the name that you represent. To resist getting back at someone was just a completely radical idea. To then pray for that person, to bless them, to do good to them, to love them, that takes Jesus' power. Like, in the flesh, we don't do that kind of stuff, at least consistently. Uh, We need Holy Spirit power. And by the way, that's the kind of thing that Jesus does on the cross when as an innocent man, he's hanging between two criminals and he's enduring insults and Jesus forgives his executioners and those who wanted him dead and he prays for them that the Father would forgive them. In Luke 7, Stephen is condemned to death by stoning because he was simply preaching the the gospel of Jesus and confronting the religious leaders who were too daft to to open their hearts and minds to Jesus. And out of love and blessing, he asks Jesus to forgive the angry mob as they kill him with rocks. You know, it says, he fell asleep. That's a euphemism for he died. You may not be in danger from slaps in the face or stolen clothing or execution by stoning, but some in the world today are, like, for real. Like, today, statistically, people are dying for their faith in other places. But chances are, you won't be. 
at least here. So why does this teaching matter? Because I think it can spur our imagination on to how we treat people, how we might react to people in our real situations. Jesus continues with more audacious words. Give to everyone who asks of you, and whoever takes away what is yours, don't demand it back. Finally, we get to what's known as the golden rule. Treat others the same way you want them to treat you. Let's just pause for a moment. So we we got this far through the text. What would Jesus' hearers and Luke's readers have heard when they're reading or, or hearing Jesus say these things? If I can get one thing across to you today about the setting, it's that people in the first century Mediterranean world lived in a social system of reciprocity. Remember that musical Chicago, that song, Reciprocity? I wish I could sing, um, but no, that would be distracting. Reciprocity is the idea that there's a patron who is usually a wealthy and powerful person who then gives gifts to people, and then those people are obliged to serve the patron. So we're going to bring this up to date a little bit. We're going to pretend we're modern day, and uh, only... Uh, the Lettered Streets neighborhood, let's pretend that is, that's about the size of a, of a, of a small city, uh, about 1,250 residents in our neighborhood. That, in Jesus' day, that would be the, the size of a, of a decent-sized little, little town. And let's say I'm the patron of Lettered Streets. You guys are, what do you want to be, Columbia, Fountain, Sunnyland. Sunnyland over here. Okay, so, no, no, you're Sunnyland, so you guys be Lettered Streets. There's more of you, too. Okay, Lettered Streets, I'm your patron I've been here a long time, and Schoon just moves to town. I just heard he's a plumber. So I introduced myself. Schoon, welcome to the neighborhood. Hey, I see you got a new, uh, new shop. You're a plumber? Yeah, he's a plumber. Uh, hey, man, um, there's this great piece of property uh, over on, uh, on Broadway and uh, Kearney Street. Um, I, I, want, I want you to have that for your shop. What would you think about that? Yeah, so he's, he's pretty excited. Uh, that's because Schoon hasn't got reciprocity yet. So I give him that property. And I even give him a toolbox. And time goes on. Until one day, at 2 in the morning, our water heater goes out. And my wife says, the water heater's out. I want to shower in the morning. 2 in the morning, Schoon's sound asleep with his family. I give him a call. Hey, Schoon, my water heater's out. Schoon does not blink an eye. None of his family matters at this point in time. He's got to serve his patron. He's obliged to me. And every time I need a plumber, whether he's got a high-paying job or not, he's on it, okay? Jim, famous chef. Jim, I happen to have the line on that fountain bistro junk pot, and um, you move into town, I'm going to give you that. Um, So time goes on. You're a very busy man. You're catering. You're trying to make ends meet. But my kid's got a birthday party, and I want you to cater it. You've got to drop what you're doing. You are obliged to the patron. So this is how it works. And it's not like in our world where we have a pretty vast middle class where you're able to say thanks but no thanks. You absolutely need the patron. Okay, now there's one more piece to this. First of all, I only give gifts to people who can actually give me things. Okay, so if you're poor or you're the wrong race or you have a physical disability I'm not giving you gifts, and you're not obliged to me. Now, here's why that's important. Anyone who is not in the network of the patron is considered an enemy. Does that shed a little light on love your enemies? That means if Frank is the patron of Sunnyland Town, 
and I've got a problem with them, guess what? They're your enemy. Okay? You ever heard the term, no strings attached? This is the world where that came from, strings attached. Think of a puppet. The patron is the puppeteer, and all of the pieces move according to the patron's plan. You know who the ultimate patron was in that day? The emperor. Okay? So you've got this at a local level, and then you've got this at an imperial level. Now listen to what scholar um, Joel Green writes about the system of reciprocity. He says, this social construction of reciprocity was an intrusive, suffocating web of obligation with resources deployed so as to maintain social equilibrium with the elite in every village, town, city, and region and of the empire as a whole. Do them in light of their the role as benefactors. If God and not the emperor then is the great benefactor or the great patron. So see what Jesus is doing. He's saying, I'm your patron now. So if God is the new patron, and if people are to act without regard to cycles of obligation, then the whole system of the empire is sabotaged. Okay? The empire runs on gift and obligation. For example, um, you know, the Roman Empire was a horrible place if you weren't in the elite. Okay? So people are starving in the villages. You know what the emperor would do every once in a while would be to throw these massive festivals and he would cater the whole thing, food just flowing off the tables. And so, you know, Three times a year, you might gorge yourself and be like, man, this emperor rocks. You bring the games to your town, maybe they're at sporting events or, or the, the gladiators. And so they would do these things in order to get people's loyalty. But the rest of the time, you were obliged to that patron. Now, what, what Jesus is saying is that there's a new patron. And I give to you, Jesus gives to you, and you don't owe, you're not obliged, okay? And so what that does is it breaks the back of the Roman thing. If you're not, if all of a sudden you can give freely without expecting in return, it kind of breaks the whole system down. In this new economy, continues Joel Green, the patron gives without strings attached, yet is still repaid now by a third party. God, the great benefactor and protector, uh, is the protector of those in need. Okay, so do unto others as you would have them do to you. The golden rule, you've heard of that. It predates Jesus, Jesus' ministry, by hundreds of years. I mean, it's even in, uh, in Homer's writings, in the Odyssey. But that teaching up until the time of Jesus always meant do unto others basically because I know that if I do that they'll do unto me it's a reciprocal thing Jesus transforms it because he says do this without any expectation of anything in return just do it because you would want others to treat you that way and what's funny is that's how we know the golden rule because we're so affected by Christianity even in kind of a pretty secular culture nowadays. I, th I think that's kind of cool. Jesus says even sinners do good to others who are willing to pay them back. The way of the world then is to, is to give and expect that you're going to get something in return. And Jesus transforms that whole idea. Give because that's what God is like and you're his children. It's like mimicking the Father, his generous and gracious character. 
So that's kind of what we're getting at with this give and don't expect something in return. With when you consider that your enemies in this text are simply people on the margins as well as those who actually insult you, or are your enemies just because you're associated to a different patron? Okay, now we've suspended our judgments. Let's uh, ask a few uh, of the questions that maybe are burning in our hearts. First is, the simple question is, okay, we heard all that. Is this still, I got to know, is this good news? It's a hard teaching, that's for sure. It's revolutionary. It's otherworldly, if we're honest about it. But imagine, imagine, Here's how you can know if it's good news. Imagine if people actually lived like this. Would the world be better? I mean, I think, I think you've got to say, yeah. Like if we actually gave and didn't have some ulterior motive, if we were actually able to, to outlove our enemies and to pray for those who are persecuted, what would happen if we took the time to pray more often for those who are persecuting is, might God change our heart or change their heart? I, I gotta say, probably. Imagine if you were so secure in who you are, and maybe more importantly, so secure in whose you are, that you could absorb insult and hatred. Imagine knowing that love so deeply in your core that you could share it with other people who were obviously hurting, that you could see through their hatred and their bitterness and say, you know what, I don't need your love to make me whole because I'm loved by the Father. But I can tell, and you, maybe you wouldn't say this to your face, you'd probably get slapped. But I can tell by your bitterness that you're hurt. And so I pray for them and I try and do good for them. You see, see what kind of world that is? And it sounds crazy as I say it out. Why? Because I'm insecure and I doubt, and you probably do too, do we really know to our core how deeply loved by the Father we are? That's one of the reasons it's good news. It's a glimpse of the kingdom of heaven. Okay, so the second thing, the yeah buts and the what ifs. I just got to be honest. I mean, if you want to get out of here today or this week or this year, we can't go through all of the hypothetical scenarios. I want to say two things then about the yeah, the yeah buts and what ifs. And the first thing I just need to say um, is a word about or to those people who have genuinely been taken advantage of and abused. You know, there's a difference between letting someone get away with stealing something from you if you uh, are choosing to do that. But, you know, some of us didn't have choices um, when things were taken from us, either physical things or emotional things or part of our innocence was taken. Some of us in this room have been exploited. And there are those who genuinely struggle with post-traumatic stress, yet even the idea of a harmful person or an evil person in our realm. Jesus knows this and he knows your pain, and he is not through this, this is not a general commandment to just put yourself in harm's way and pretend like none of that real history really happened. Remember that this is a vision of what the kingdom of God can be like. It's an invitation to live radically different now, but there are many who, uh, 
who need significant healing and restoration before this type of thing can be a reality. And I just want to say that out loud. Because otherwise what we do is we just stop our ears up and we're not listening anymore, okay? But what about the what-ifs and yeah-buts for the rest of us? I want to say this. Allow Jesus' teaching here to expand your imagination and to challenge you. Instead of starting with the hypotheticals, yeah, but okay, I can imagine the scenario with, you know, instead of starting with the hypotheticals, why don't we start with concrete examples? Situations where you've really been insulted or hated or left out. Maybe you're, you're going through something like that right now. What is your resistance to praying for those people, to blessing them, to doing good to them? Think, just, I mean, there's an opportunity to think through that in a concrete way. You, you could use your imagination here to, um, to take it to everyday relationships too. So a lot of times we, uh, for example, in a marriage relationship, you don't think of your spouse as an enemy, right? I, I hope not. But you know, there's some things where you, you don't see eye to eye, do you? You know, what's your definition of cleaning the bathroom or, you know, I, you know, I thought, you know, underwear just goes in a drawer anyway, so fold underwear, I just... Right? It's not, that's not a real fight that we have. But, but in the marriage relationship, there are, there are things that sometimes we don't see eye to eye on. What would it look like then, instead of trying to get our own way, to pray for the other person and to try and outserve them, to do good to them, to bless them? Uh, because those, those little differences have, have, a, have a way of becoming bitterness and, and wedges between us. Um, I just saw a lot of our cohort kids coming up. Um, uh, I know many of you have siblings, and all of you have friends, right? Uh, do you always get along with your siblings and friends? No, no that was a pretty easy head shake there, Sophia. Uh, yeah, so, yeah, I mean, we, in relationships, there's conflict. So what would it look like then, rather than always trying to get our own way or get the, the bowl with the most ice cream by, like, three grams or whatever it is, um, to to defer to the other person and to pray for that brother or sister or friend, uh, to try and outdo them, to try and do something really nice. In fact, here's, here's a practical homework rather than a theory. What is one really nice thing each of us could do for someone in our life where we have some sort of adversarial thing going on? It's just one thing. That, that would be using our imagination to put this into practice, one small step at a time. I think Jesus' point here is that life as a child of God is about a disposition of generosity and grace. Disposition is a leaning toward, right? It's about trusting that your value and, our, and identity are from God and that all the reward that you ever need will come from God. And if that is true, then we don't need to be thanked by people every time we do something good. And we can give and receive without fear of debt or obligation. And that in itself is truly freeing. The third and final question I want to ask is, how can we actually do this? It's got to be more than willpower and human effort. If that's all it was, Jesus could have just emailed us instructions. He wouldn't have had to become incarnate and die on a cross for us. He could have just given us an example instead of rising from the dead. He could have just said, be like me. But no, he sent his Holy Spirit to actually 
transform us and give us the power to do this. The key, I think, to knowing how we're supposed to live this out is in the last sentence of the text. It says, be merciful, be merciful just as your Father is merciful. It sounds like a a command that implies that we should be able to be merciful. That is misleading. Little grammar lesson, okay? Ian's tracking with me here. In the Greek language, there are three main voices when giving a command. There's the active, which means be merciful, meaning being merciful is something that you do. You make happen out of your own power, okay? That's the active voice. And the passive voice, be merciful, means you will become merciful by some other agency, And when we're in the context of talking about God, it's called the divine passive. So God is the one who makes you merciful. That's the passive voice. And then there's the more rare middle voice, which was almost gone from the New Testament time, but it's used in some places. I guess you could guess where. Right here. And it means the middle voice is kind of a combination of the active and the passive. What it means is, as you take steps towards obedience, God makes you merciful. That word, be, for be merciful, is geneste. I know that means nothing to you, but let me help you out. The root from that word is genomai, which means to be born. How many of you have been born? Come on, everybody. Everybody. How involved were you in that? (laughs) Yeah. And yet, you took a breath because you're here, and you probably cried, probably scored real high on the APGAR. I got a lot of high APGAR scores I see out here. Um, there, there's something, you did take a breath, you, even if that's a response to a reflex. You didn't really birth yourself. You didn't create your DNA. You didn't put all the cells together. And yet, you kind of have a part in it. And that's what this be merciful is. It's in the middle voice. And it's saying, as you and I try, like you've, Try and find that one thing, how you can bless someone this week, how you can pray for someone who's really ticking you off. As you do that in the middle voice, God says, I meet you there, and I actually empower you in that, and I make you merciful. You guys, this is gospel right here. It's not all about trying harder, but it's not all about, well, God's just going to do it in his own time. It's about, hey, guess what? This is, for me, uh, an active person. This is my favorite kind of voice because I get to get engaged, and yet it's not all up to me. That's beautiful. That's how Jesus does stuff in us. I want to, we're going to do a middle voice actually exercise here after, um, well, it is after the message. Ta-da, it's done. That was the good news. (laughs) And the reason I'm not doing my normal like prayer at the end is because today is a healing prayer Sunday. And so Joan Youngquist, uh, I'm going to invite her forward now. She's going to be at this kneeling bench, and I'll be over here. And this is middle voice exercise right here. We are going to uh, lay hands and anoint with oil and pray for anyone who has a, a physical, emotional uh, need uh, or, or joy you want to express. We'll, we'll do that too. Come on up. We'll, we'll hoop and holler with God. Um, but we're, I, I can't heal you. Joan can't heal you. Uh, but God can heal you. And there's this beautiful thing where he calls us to pray for one another and to, to lay hands on each other. And it's a middle voice activity. Like we get to be participants in it together as a church. Uh, and as we do that, we trust that God will be God 
over these situations. So 